All right, um, uh, I'm Wallace Marshall. Nice to be with you again. Um, I run the Charleston chapter of Reasonable Faith, which is a large Christian apologetics organization started by William Lane Craig. It's uh, based in Atlanta, and we have maybe 75, 80 chapters in the U.S. and other parts of the world. I have a full-time job, so this is just something I, I do on the side. But I've had a long interest in um, apologetics and got to know Spencer through that. And so he's asked if I'll come occasionally and share on certain topics. So he thought it would be nice to do something uh, science and faith related tonight. So I titled this little talk, uh, Does Science Make It Harder or Easier to Believe in God? And um, you might think that the automatic answer for a Christian is uh, that it makes it easier to believe in God. But uh, having thought about this issue a good bit some years ago, I, I realized that um, there was an aspect, there was an element of truth to the idea that a lot of people have that science makes it harder to believe in God. And I think the right answer is that science makes it easier to believe in what I call God with a capital G or all caps, if you like, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, but it makes it more difficult to believe in uh, gods with a lowercase g, g-o-d-s, gods that are not uh, intelligent or gods that are not uh, transcendent. Um, so let me talk about each of those. And I guess one thing I would share is just as a general principle, I have found this to be useful in life, that um, when there's a common way that people think about something, um, it, it may be quite mistaken, but often there is a, a, a kernel of truth. There's an aspect of things that is correct there. And part of the work, particularly of practical apologetics, where you're trying to persuade people, I think involves trying to identify what that is and then bringing that forward and making the distinction to the person so that they feel like you understood uh, what was nagging at your brain, so to speak, and then we're able to show them a broader view of things. So, um, why does science make it easier to believe in God? Well, we could have lots of talks on this, but um, there are uh, briefly two big discoveries of 20th century physics that have made it really, I mean, just easy from an intellectual point of view to believe in God. Um, one is the absolute beginning of all things, the, what's commonly known as the Big Bang. I know a lot of you may have grown up in churches as I did as a kid where the Big Bang was perceived as sort of a, in competition with the creation theory, but that's really not the case. Prior to uh, the discovery of the Big Bang, which really grew out of Einstein's equations in the early 20th century, and it really wasn't until the 1950s or so that scientists actually began to realize that this was the case, namely that um, the universe was not eternal. Now, obviously as Christians and or Jews or Muslims don't believe that the universe is eternal, but the prevailing scientific view um, prior to the mid-20th century was what's called the steady-state theory of the universe. The universe has just simply always existed, um, and at a certain point it evolved the planets and the Earth and the Sun and so forth. Um, and there was a lot of resistance to uh, this idea, uh, and one of the reasons was its theistic implications, and it just seemed so crazy. In fact, the term Big Bang was coined by the British astronomer Fred Boyle as um, 
a pejorative term. It was really a term of mockery saying, you know, this is what science was telling you. It's just bang, and, and, and the, the universe popped into existence. Um, but that is, in fact, uh, how the science has, has held up. And the idea is that um, when you take the laws of physics, you just can't extrapolate them into past infinity. You come back to a point where uh, everything, space, matter, time, and energy, all just come into existence uh, out of nothing, or ex nihilo, as the word is. Um, so uh, where does that leave you? Well, it, it basically leaves you with two options. Either the universe was brought into existence by a transcendent cause, some type of cause that transcends it, or it just inexplicably popped into being for no cause whatsoever. Um, and we could have a whole talk on uh, comparing those two to each other. I'll just say briefly here that it's far more plausible to believe that there's a cause that brought the universe into being than to think that it just popped into existence out of, out of nothing. Three, three just really quick reasons for that. One is that empirically speaking, in, in all of our experience, we don't see things coming into existence out of nothing. Whenever we see something come into existence, there's some cause that's there. And as scientists, scientists are usually committed to empiricism, right? <laughs> that we should go with what our experience says. Um, another reason, and this to me is the most powerful and interesting one, is that if it were possible for something to come into existence from nothing and by nothing, that is, with no power, out of nothing, it's inexplicable why everything and anything doesn't just pop into existence all the time. Um, because you know, what, what, there are no constraints on nothing, if you will, right? If we think about, well, what can this plant turn into or that water? Well, there are constraints based on its properties and potentialities that it has in it. But nothing has no potentialities, it has no properties, and so if nothing could turn into anything, even a universe, I mean, why wouldn't it just happen all the time? We don't experience things popping into existence out of, out of nothing. And the last reason is that, um, uh, the conviction that things don't come into being out of nothing is really one of the fundamental presuppositions that undergird modern science. And so, as scientific, rational people, um, we shouldn't, that shouldn't be our default position. So, I would argue that it's, um, it's just a first principle of philosophy and metaphysics. It's self-evident that being can't come from non-being. In the ancient world, the philosophers had a term, ex nihilo nihil feet. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Um, but there are those, uh, those other additional reasons. So that's why it's far more plausible to think that the universe was brought into being by an extended, uh, a transcendent cause. And um, we don't have time for this tonight, but if you do an uh, analysis of what this cause would have to be in the nature of the case, you come out with something that actually looks very much like a personal, spiritual, time transcendent being, really like the uh, Judeo Christian. Um, the second discovery of uh, 20th century physics was the fine-tuning of the cosmos. And this has to do with these initial conditions that have to be there right at the beginning of the Big Bang, fine-tuned to an infinitesimal, I mean, mind-blowing degree, um, just to allow you to have the conditions that would allow life to evolve, stars to form and chemical elements and things like that. One example of that is um, when, when, you know, the universe has this incredible expansion when it begins. And if you think about it, if, if 
that they've discovered that that force had to be fine-tuned to one part in uh, 10 to the 60th power. So it's a, it's a huge infinitesimal number. It's just slightly below that. Um, the forces of expansion aren't strong enough, and so the universe just recollapses on itself, and um, it's over basically <laughs> as soon as it got started. On the other hand, if it's just slightly above that, everything just flies away from itself too fast. There's not enough gravitational pull to bring things together. So there are a whole lot of these fine-tuning con constants. And again, that brings you to um, a, a fork in the road, so to speak. You can either believe that there's an intelligent creator who arranged the initial conditions of the universe in that way, or you can come up with uh, this thing called a multiverse. And you gotta have not just a couple extra universes because the odds are so mind-bending that you really need an infinite or near infinite number of parallel universes. And really, uh, multiverse theory is itself a testimony to how powerful the fine-tuning argument is. Um, there are some uh, YouTube videos on this uh, NASA astronomer, Robert Jastrow, who uh, died maybe a decade ago or so. He's famous for the line, you may have heard your preacher mention it in a sermon, but when Jaster was talking about the discovery of Big Bang Theory, he likened it to, um, you know, these scientists, you know, struggling through the years, climbing up the mountain of ignorance, and, you know, finally they get to the top and they pull themselves over the edge, and as their heads pop over the edge, they're greeted by a band of theologians that's been sitting there for centuries. That was uh, what uh, Jaster, that's how he characterized the, the discovery of the Big Bang. Um, and uh, Jaster was an agnostic, and he was, not a, he was not like a hardcore opponent of religion, but in these videos where he talks about the fine-tuning, and the fine-tuning, he considered it to be the most powerful evidence for the existence of God ever to come out of science. And he would say in these videos that, you know, I, I really don't know how to handle this psychologically. I've been groomed to be an agnostic, a practical atheist my whole life. That's just how my mind naturally thinks, but I can't uh, overcome this, this, uh, this evidence. Um, I actually don't know where he ended up taking it, if he just became a softer agnostic or what. Um, but anyway, um, the, the multiverse theory was regarded as really just kind of something ridiculous until several decades ago, but it has come into much more prominence in the scientific community because of the evidence from fine-tuning, because it's the only other possible explanation. So if someone tries to dismiss fine-tuning as, ah, you know, we don't know, no, it's, it's very well established, and that's why, you know, multiverse theory has come along. So sometime when we do the fine-tuning argument, I'll talk to you about, you know, why multiverse is a much less uh, plausible uh, explanation of the fine-tuning than, than, uh, than creation is. So those are two main reasons, I would say, why uh, science makes it easier to believe in God. Any questions or comments about that? I, mean, I agree with that. <clears throat> like you said, non-being and being, and being has to create. So there had to be something first. Yeah. I often... Uh, used to say to my students at Boston College when I was doing my doctorate there and I had to teach classes, but I told them the, the first and most fundamental lesson of philosophy is something now is, therefore, something has always been. That uh, if, you, if you embrace that idea, ex nihilo nihil feet, nothing can come from nothing, um, then it follows that just from the existence of anything at all, 
there is some eternal being that exists. And you can know that just very easily. And it's either, you know, the universe or God or God and the universe coexisting eternally. Those are your three options. That's a nice way just to start thinking about reality and having a conversation about things. Okay, so uh, since you don't have any questions about that, how does science make it easier to believe in a certain kind of God? Well, um, if, you, if you think about the cosmological argument or the fine-tuning argument, you're dealing with a transcendent God that is a God who is not part of the creation, he's not intertwined with the creation. Um, that was a, um, a contribution, really, of the Judeo-Christian world to human civilization prior to the, the first time, in fact, that you see this idea of a transcendent God clearly articulated philosophically. I think it's implied in the Bible, but the first time you hear it articulated is really in the second century AD. Um, so it was uh, as, as obvious as the idea might seem to us. For most of human history, people have thought of God as being part of the universe. Um, or one big whole or an aspect of it, uh, but not as a transcendent God. And of course, uh, it's far more uh, common to find people believing in uh, paganism, you know, where, uh, say, animistic religions, where God is intertwined with the wind or certain animals and forces in nature. Now, uh, can you think of why, let's just say that you perceive the world that way, put yourself in the shoes of a typical savage living in the jungle, and you began to learn about science and how things work. Can you think about what that might do to your belief in those kinds of gods? We tend to make you not believe in them because those gods fulfilled certain functions. You know, they helped you to explain what was happening in nature. They were, were fill-ins, if you will. And, um, and so as you learned about why those things happened scientifically, the need for those gods became less evident. Um, or think about pantheistic religions like in the East. Well there um, God is, uh, is, is, is again just, I mean on pantheism God and the universe are essentially one. In fact on pantheism really um, if you think about it the science is illusory because the ultimate view of reality that uh, pantheism has is that being is fundamentally one at its ultimate level, and that all distinctions are ultimately illusory. You know, if you enroll in meditation classes, Buddhism and stuff like that, that's how they teach you the virtue of not being selfish, for example. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, you know, uh, you know, joked about it that, you know, on Buddhism, you know, you love your neighbor as yourself because you learn that your neighbor is yourself. <laughs> um, so again, um, you know, uh, but a scientific worldview maintains that these things are actually real concrete entities and um, that there are real properties of things and they're not illusory. So again, this tends to do away with uh, pantheism. And then finally, what I think is much more relevant to us as you know, Christians today is this, uh, what I call a, a childlike conception of God. Um, and, you know, uh, how many of you have children? Some of you, so well, you, you know how children think about God at a young age, and you know what they learn about it in Sunday school and so forth. But a lot of people, um, your, your conception of God as a child is really like God with a lowercase g, it's, you know, some powerful being that's up there. And then, you know, as you 
teach your children no, you know, God is eternal. He had, you know, no beginning at all. <laughs> he has no body. All those kinds of things. Um, that takes a while to sink into a, a child's mind. And of course, you know, the real notion of a transcendent God and all of the depths that that entails uh, to your thinking about reality is, is, is not there for a child, at least not at first. And a lot of people, I think, in the Christian church never grow out of what I call that, that Sunday school conception of, of God. You know, God continues to be this kind of, you know, figure that's sitting on your shoulder. And, um, and I think, you know, in a lot of, I think Christian worship used to have more of a sense of transcendence to it. You were made the, the majesty of God, if you think about, say, going into a Roman Catholic church or an Anglican cathedral and the thundering organ and the huge, um, you know, uh, cathedral going up on either side. All those things inculcated in you the, the majesty and grandeur and greatness of God. Mm-hmm. Whereas we tend to have a very casual approach to God. It's, it's how we pray, mm-hmm. how we read the Bible, all of that. So th- there's a lot in how we practice Christianity, for better or for worse, that can make us easily think of God as sort of a God with a lowercase g. So again, um, you know, the more you learn about science, it can kind of make the need for that God seem um, less urgent. Um, and that added one more thing here, which is not on your outline, and that is that um, if you have a tendency to take how answers for why answers, then science can make it uh, easier to disbelieve in God. You, again, people sometimes ask you, you know, why did so-and-so happen? And, and someone gives a, a, a mechanical explanation of the mechanics, and you mean, no, no, I don't mean that. <laughs> you know? I mean, why? You know, you're, what is the purpose behind something? Um, and I think even before, you know, the origin of, of, of modern science, you know, people, you know, the, the, the operation of nature is sort of mysterious, even if you do believe in a, a transcendent God. And so, to the extent that you know God is responsible for all those things and sort of being intertwined with them and the immediate agent, if you will, of what happens in nature, well, science teaches you how those things actually happen, uh, what it is that causes you know weather to come in in a certain way, why it is that we have hurricanes on the east coast, and earthquakes on the west coast, and tornadoes in the south central part of the United States, and things like that. So all of that can displace that kind of God, and if you don't have a sort of higher orientation to a transcendent God, um, it can, it can, it can, you can gradually start losing your sense of, of God um, as you learn more about the way the world operates. Questions or comments on that? What's been your experience? I take it all of you have learned a little bit of science over the years, or maybe you had siblings who became science geeks, but. Uh, have you witnessed this phenomenon take place? Other aspects of things that you would discuss? I mean, my first reaction is I haven't heard it really put like the number one and number two. You know, and I'm pretty new to the faith, and uh, I haven't heard it put that way. As far as this is the first time I've really experienced any sort of apologetics or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting coming from a family of scientists who are atheists or. You do, okay. Yes. Uh, uh-huh. So um, it's been interesting in my own personal journey and how I declared my faith to my family. Uh, I'm not talking about my wife and daughters, but my, my sister. Extended parents. family. Yeah, exactly. But um, 
So it's, and we haven't really gone down this path per se, but um, for me, it's, it's the further along I get, the more conviction I have, I feel like it's pretty, pretty apparent. Um, and I haven't even thought of something in a little while, but I did, coming off the, you know, the moment when, when I came to Christ and stuff like that, when I walked mountains, it's kind of like, all right, all right. Because I had, you know, I, I was very interested in science and all that stuff. But, um, so it really puts, for me, it really kind of puts things together nice and constantly. Yeah. But uh, some of your extended family, they kind of, you notice some of these orientations that, well, you know, science explains everything, so they, they don't have a, an appetite for yes. higher order questions, so to speak. Twofold. So, um, three sisters, all a little bit of a black eye with the Catholic Church, bad experiences, had troubles when they were in their youth and their teen years went to the church for some advice and got sort of shunned and turned away, you know, they were having their teen challenges, right? Yeah. So that sort of started forming their image of the church, right? But then, I don't know if it's coincidence or what, but went into science and, yeah, more or less just rode the evolution theory to the, um, to the sort of discredit of, of, of God or Transcendent God or, or otherwise. Um, yeah, and there's a whole other talk we could have on that, and I didn't mention the evidence from biology in favor of God. Not that I don't think it's powerful, but it's a it's a contested element. So if you bring that forward in a apologetic conversation, someone's always going to throw up evolutionary theory, and then you got this whole you know mess on your hands. Whereas with the evidence from cosmology, that's not contested. I mean, there are scientists who are trying to come up with past eternal cosmologies um, to try to restore that old view of things, but nobody has been successful in putting one forward that has gained widespread uh, acceptance. Um, all right. Um, another thing that's interesting, uh, I, I, my PhD was in the historical interaction between science and philosophy and religion in the modern West. Um, and there's a, I didn't know this before I started thinking about what I wanted to do my PhD in, but there's a whole discipline in the humanities called the history of science. And there are big programs at major universities. Um, so the historians have been studying the history of science for many years. Um, it's a big field, there are lots of publications, and there's a very robust um, uh, academic literature on um, the relationship between science and, and religion. One of the big questions that um, historians of science try to answer is, why did modern science arise when and where it did in the modern West? Because it doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. Sometimes people will try to say it started in ancient Greece. That's just not true. This, this way of looking at the universe as sort of having all these properties and laws that interact with each other and can be rationally explained. And then the idea of um, that you could come up with an orderly way of investigating all of this and uh, derive laws and so forth. Um, that is really something that comes into existence in, with the, the scientific revolution in the 1600s. Um, and so they've tried to figure out, well, well, well why, why does this happen? 
And one of the biggest theories, and I think it's really the most plausible one, is that it is the Judeo-Christian conception of God itself that gives rise to modern science. So it, it um, that, that, that is to say, that notion of a transcendent God, if God is not in the universe and intertwined with it, but transcends it and is distinct from it, um, and, and you know, that's just a, a bedrock principle of really Judaism, Islam, and, and Christianity. That's why you don't worship God through images, right? Because images, you know, that was the hardest thing in the Old Testament, that second commandment. Okay, we'll worship Jehovah, but please give us some images we can worship him through. And there is this hard discipline imposed on the Israelites. We take it for granted. But it is a very hard discipline for them. Everybody in the world worshiped God through images. And they were not permitted to. They had to conceive of God as this spiritual being that could not be represented by anything physical, because God was training them to think about him as this transcendent being. Um, but uh, to the extent that that becomes widespread in the world, well then, God is not part of the world anymore. He may be in the world, right? in him we live and move and have our being, but he's not part of it. So the world is this, dis this separate entity that is created by God. So it desanctifies the world, if you will, or demystifies it, and that you're free to look at it as something that's not divine, and you can pick it apart, if you will, and study it. Um, and the other aspect of the Judeo-Christian God is that God is uh, a moral and rational being. You know, in the ancient world, the gods were you know, irrational and crazy, and a lot of the things you do is you just get the gods on your side, you know, or make sure you're not on their bad side. But the idea of a rational God makes people think that, well, there's a rational framework in the universe itself. Um, it's not like all of that happened uh, right at the scientific revolution, uh, and then you had one, in fact, um, uh, historians of modern science now recognize that it really begins, the groundwork for modern science is really laid in the Middle Ages. Um, one of the, the great historians of science uh, at the University of Wisconsin, uh, David Lindbergh is his name, he was not a Christian, but he did his work in medieval science, and this was something that he wrote on for a, a large part of his, his career. So anyway, that's just kind of an interesting thing, that not only is, that the science is so consistent with the Christian faith, or if you want to speak more broadly, the Judeo-Christian faith, or even Judeo-Islamic, and there is a footnote there we can talk about another time, which is modern science gets started in the Islamic world, but then get, gets shut down very quickly, um, because Muslims historically, and I think this is probably true for many of them today as well, tend to, they have such a robust conception of divine sovereignty that any admission of actual causality in the world is seen as detracting from that. They have a hard time with the both and that you know, we as Christians believe. But anyway, uh, you know, the point is that science is so comfortable really with the Christian faith that it's really the Christian faith, you can argue, that gave rise to modern science. At least there's a very plausible argument for that. All right, so very briefly here, um, how should Christians relate science to theology? I am a big advocate of what's called the two books approach, the book of scripture and the book of nature. This was very common in older Christian theology, really up until the 20th century. One of the peculiarities of, of, of 20th century Protestantism and even Roman Catholicism, at least in America and England, was that um, Christian thinkers for this period started to lose confidence in the arguments for the existence of God. 
and they they felt like people like Hume and Kant had demolished those arguments, and that Christians had made this mistake, this uh, you know a, a bargain with the devil, so to speak, by trying to believe that they could establish the Christian religion through philosophical and scientific arguments or the existence of God. And so there was a big movement for much of the 20th century to try to get away from the book of nature and to go back to scripture first and scripture only. But I think that um, that older view is, is, is much more, more fruitful. And if you think about it, one of the uh, principles of the Protestant Reformation, uh, we're Protestants here, but um, remember the Roman Catholics would ask the Protestants, well, if the church's interpretation of the scriptures is not authoritative, how are you going to know what the right interpretation is? And uh, you may not be aware of the, the great principle that they came up with in response to that, but it was that scripture interprets scripture. Scripture is its own interpreter. So it's not like you just take any passage of scripture and you can just impose any interpretation you want. You get all this, this whole other body of scripture that has to uh, come into play, and you have to balance your interpretation uh, based on that. I was just thinking about this this morning because my wife was sharing with me her reading from Ecclesiastes. Don't say that the former times were better than today. <laughs> and we were talking about how, well, there's that, but then, you know, Jesus and the apostles think that their time is particularly bad. You know what Peter says at Pentecost, you know, when he comes to the climax of his sermon there, he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. You know? um, so I, 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 I sympathize with that. We're living in one of those generations now, but at any rate, the point is: well, how do you put those together? You know, one uh, puts a constraint on the other in how you interpret it. So, the advocates of Book of Nature, Book of Scripture, would say the same thing. They'd say God is the author of both. God's the author of the Book of Nature. He's made the world. We believe in that. Um, he's put it there not to deceive us. There are, are truths that are there, and so the Book of Nature can interpret the Book of Scripture and vice versa. And there can be difficult questions about, okay, you know, how much credence do you give to this part versus that part? But if you think about that, we have to wrestle with that in the Bible, too. You know, you have a, a handful of passages that bear on a particular question, and you have to say, well, okay, where does the preponderance of evidence lie? So I think that's a, a very healthy and freeing approach there. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's a whole aesthetic component, I think, to um, you know, the, the, the study and pursuit of science. I did my doctoral dissertation on uh, Puritanism and natural theology. The Puritans, you know, were this very influential group of people in England and America, ministers primarily, who, um, of course, landed on our shores here and founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but also had a huge influence in England. And there's a gigantic body of literature on Puritanism and its influences. But um, at any rate, the received wisdom was that, you know, they weren't big advocates of natural theology, you know, knowing God through nature. And it turned out that it's completely wrong. I show that in my book. But anyway, Stephen Charnock was one of the uh, great Puritans. He has this big two-volume work called uh, The Existence and Attributes of God. And uh, the Puritans were just very enthusiastic about the study of nature. And they actually said, you know, it's your duty as a Christian to study nature. And um, I thought I would quote for you this... Um, this thing from his works here um, at the bottom there. Study God in the creatures as well as in the scriptures. Notice that. 
The world is a sacred temple. Man is introduced to contemplate it and behold with praise the glory of God in the pieces of his art. As grace doth not destroy nature, so the book of redemption, that is Christian revelation, blots not out that of creation. The least creature speaks to man. Every shrub in the field, every fly in the air, every limb in a body. Consider me, God disdains not to appear in me. He has discovered in me his being and a part of his skill, as well as in the highest. God offers something to our consideration in every creature. Shall we be like ignorant children that view the pictures or point to the letters in a book without any sense and meaning? How shall God have the homage due to him for his works if man hath no care to observe them? Isn't that a beautiful approach to you know, the study of nature and being interested in it? We really believe that God created the world. He's, he's made it like this. It's fascinating. And uh, part of our um, joy as human beings really is to investigate his handiwork. And we don't just do that scientifically, but we also do that um, aesthetically. And I think, uh, you know, viewing uh, nature in its wholeness and grandeur as the work of God does add that whole poetic dimension to it. I mentioned Psalm 104 as a, a great example of that. So I would just say, you know, how should a Christian relate science to, without, to uh, theology? We maintain the book of scripture and the book of nature. We give uh, weight to each of those things. They don't have to be equal weight, but we, we say that, that God speaks to us through both nature and scripture. And um, so we can be open to both and take the pains of harmonizing them together and then pay attention to God in nature and glorify him. In it. There's a whole you know, world of liberty to, uh, to open up to there. So that's very, my very quick answer, half-hour answer to, does science make it harder or easier to believe in God? Well, questions, comments, discussion? I can't remember if you stopped.